Uh, there's a uh, world-renowned historian and philosopher. His name is William Durant, and he wrote a really popular book called The Story of Philosophy, and, it, and it's actually used in a lot of places as a textbook still today. Uh, he's a Pulitzer Prize winner, and, but the thing that he's most known for is an 11-volume series, 11-volume series. Now, I'm telling you, you're impressive if you can write one volume of anything. But if you can write 11 volumes about something, I mean, I, I just don't know how smart you have to be or how little of a life you must have uh, to be able to write 11 volumes about something. But he wrote 11 volumes called The Story of Civilization that he wrote with his wife, Ariel, I, I think is her name. And in one of the volumes, it, it documents how after Jesus died on the cross outside of Jerusalem, that in just a short period of time, Christianity uh, became an enemy of the Roman Empire. Uh, that somehow a movement started after the death of Jesus and this movement became an enemy of the Roman Empire. And it would remain an enemy of the Roman Empire for the next 280 years. But as many of you might remember from history, in the year 312 in a document and a proclamation called the Edict of Milan, uh, Constantine actually legalized Christianity, which was a big deal because for 280 years before that, Christians had been persecuted. Christians had been put to death. They had been burned at the stake. They had been beheaded, sawn in two, drowned, killed with spears and swords. And, and, and you've heard many, many of those things before. But for 280 years before this, they had been the enemy of the empire. And then, you know, through a really great story that I don't have time to tell you, but in 312, uh, Constantine legal, legalizes Christianity. And 10 years after that, uh, Christianity is the actual religion of the Roman empire which is really one of the great miracles of history because what started in Jerusalem among just really powerless peasants, what started in Jerusalem among very few people had spread all the way to Rome and against impossible odds, eventually without a sword, without a territory, without an army, it toppled the greatest empire that had ever been on the face of this planet. William Durant, he says this in the story of civilization, he said, there is no greater drama in the human record than the sight of a few Christians scorned and depressed by a succession of emperors, bearing all trials with a fierce tenacity, multiplying quietly, building order while their enemies generated chaos, fighting the sword, I love this, with the word, brutality with hope, and at last defeating the strongest state history has ever known. Caesar and Christ had met in the arena and Christ had won. He goes on to say, he says, that a few simple men should in one generation have invented so powerful and appealing a personality like Jesus. So lofty an ethic like love your neighbor as yourself, love others as I have loved you. And so inspiring a vision of human brotherhood it would be a miracle far more incredible than any recorded in the gospels. And then he says, looking back with modern day eyes, he says, after two centuries of higher criticism, the outline of the life, character and teachings of Christ remain reasonably clear and constitute the most fascinating feature in the history of Western man. In other words, the point that he's getting at is that Christianity is the movement that should have never happened. Its founder was a carpenter not an emperor, not, not a priest, not a scholar, um, not a, a priest, but a carpenter, a carpenter from Nazareth, not Athens, 
not Rome, not Alexandria, but a carpenter from Nazareth, born on the wrong side of the tracks, without money, without a home, without education, a guy who really never traveled more than 100 miles from the place where he called home. But yet in the midst of all of that, in the midst of him claiming to be God, in the midst of him claiming to people that he was able to forgive sins as God would forgive sins, in the midst of him talking about that he was the king of a kingdom that was not of this world, but yet this kingdom was invading this world. And in the midst of his teaching and his claims, he invited a group of ragtag, powerless peasants to follow him. Fishermen, political zealots, tax collectors, people who are really the outcasts and the garbage of society, he invited to be his followers, to be his inner circle, to be the people that were closest to him. And yet, even though he died as an enemy of his state and an enemy of his church, yet here we are 2,000 years later on the other side of the planet talking about a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth by the name of Jesus. Because in some way in just three years, in three years he galvanized such a movement, a movement that ultimately changed the landscape of everything. It changed the landscape of how we thought about the world, how we thought about life, how we thought about each other, how we thought about ourselves, how we thought about sin, how we thought about a relationship with God, that it changed everything. And this movement was something that was able to bring together master and slave. How does that happen? It was a movement that brought together people from the upper class and the not so upper class. No matter what your political persuasion was, no matter what your worldview had been, no matter what your story was, no matter if you were Jew or Gentile, whether you were male or female, somehow you got swept up in a movement that was meeting on the first day of the week. And as Justin Martyr wrote somewhere around 150 AD, that on the first day of the week, the Christians would gather together and they would sing a song to God. They would sing a song to Christ as God. They would open the scriptures and they would talk about the good news. That on the first day of week, the first day of the week, a group of people who shared nothing in common, they would get together because they had the most important thing in common. And that was a belief, a confidence, faith that Jesus Christ of Nazareth had died for their sins, had been buried, and was raised from the dead. And for them, it changed everything. And not only for them did it change everything, but it changed everything about the trajectory of human history after that moment. Now, if you're new to this series, for the past few weeks, I've been talking about faith and specifically been talking about reasonable faith. And reasonable faith, which is Christian faith, is a faith that embraces authentic curiosity. So bring your questions, bring your doubts, Bring your suspicions, bring your skepticism. Christian faith is not intimidated by such things because we invite healthy, authentic, open curiosity. And Christian faith is actually a fan of critical thinking, regardless of what you might think after reading on social media. But Christians have always had a commitment to critical thinking because our faith was intended to be reasonable. Because Christian faith isn't a faith that causes you to check your brain at the door or turn your back on science. Christian faith is a faith that begins with facts. Let's all just say that out loud so I know you're with me this morning. Faith begins with facts. Don't ever forget it. 
It doesn't begin with feelings. Oh, oh. What, what do you, what's wrong? Or is something wrong? I feel faith. Now, that's not faith. faith. Faith is not a feeling. It could have gone either way there. I don't know. But, you know, some folks, they look like they're having a real moment when it comes to faith. Faith, faith isn't feelings. Faith doesn't begin with feelings. Faith doesn't begin with an experience. It's like, how do you know you have faith? Well, I'll tell you, I had an experience one time. That, that's not how you get to faith. Faith is not by experience. Faith begins with facts. Faith begins with information. Uh, faith, actually, Christian faith, it, it, it doesn't have to settle for faith-based answers to fact-based questions. So, so we don't have to sell, you know, sell ourselves to the shallow end of the pool and ask really big questions, but have really shallow answers for those really deep questions. Christian faith follows the facts. It evaluates the evidence. And in the facts and in the evidence, again, I, I want to just emphasize all of this again, because this is our last week talking about this. In the facts and in the evidence, we find reason. We find reasons to believe what we believe. In other words, Christian faith, Christian faith exists in light of reason, not in spite of reason. So don't ever have to, you know, don't ever embrace an idea of Christian faith where you have to stop thinking. Well, I just can't, I, I just can't think about that or I'm, I'm going to go in a really bad direction or it gets really uncomfortable when I stop thinking. Christian faith exists in light of reason because you have thought because you have followed the facts, because you have evaluated the evidence. And again, this is something I don't want us to forget. Parents, I don't want you to forget this idea. I don't want you to forget this image. Grandparents, people who have influence over the next generation or even for yourself, don't ever forget this. Christian faith is following the facts and following the evidence to the edge of the light. But because you have the confidence of what you have discovered in the light, you have the confidence to take one more step into the dark. That's Christian faith, that you follow the facts to the edge of the light, and then you find yourself with the confidence to take one more step, and it was a confidence that you found in the facts and the evidence that you discovered and what you learned in the light, what you heard in the light, what you saw in the light. Because of the confidence you discovered in the light, you found a reason to take one more step beyond the light. That's Christian faith. And that's why Peter says, always, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason, the reason that you took that last step, the reason that you stepped beyond the light into the dark. Be ready to give an answer to everyone for the reason, for the hope that you have. Why do you have the hope that you have? Why is it that you decided to take one more step? Why Jesus? Why not something else? Why anything at all? Why would you organize your life around the teachings of Jesus? Because I don't know if you know this, but organizing your, your life around the teachings of Jesus, Jesus is extremely inconvenient. Please don't look at me like religious people. Following Jesus isn't fun, always. Sometimes following Jesus means saying no to what you want to say yes to. Following Jesus sometimes means saying yes to what you wanted to say no to. Why would you then organize your life around Jesus? Why not just live your life? Live your life the way you wanna live your life. Why would you live your life some other way than the way that you want to live your life? Why would you believe in certain ethics? Why would you believe certain things are right or certain things are wrong? Why Jesus? Why do you follow him? Why do you as a Christian believe the things that you believe? Peter says, you gotta be ready. You need to have an answer. 
You need to be able to articulate the reason that you have hope, the reason that you took another step. And so this has been the framework, this is it. And I hope you write it down. I hope you just get it in your mind, get it in your heart. This is the framework for reasonable faith. Somebody says, why do you believe what you believe? Well, I'll tell you why I believe what I believe. I believe what I believe because God exists. You, you mean you believe God exists? I do believe God exists. Well, why do you believe that God exists? Well, let me tell you, I'm really glad you asked that question because I believe that God exists because the universe had a beginning. I actually believe God exists because of science. Because of science, you do? I do. I believe that God exists because of science. What do you mean? Can you tell me more? Matter of fact, I can tell you more. Thank you for inviting me in. I will tell you that the universe had a beginning. I didn't say so, science says so. And everything that has a beginning has a cause. Well, how do you know? Because science says so. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. And since the universe had a beginning, you know what? Are you saying the universe had a cause? You're right, you're getting it. So the universe has a cause and this cause must be an uncaused, first cause. And if time, space and matter had a beginning, then the cause of that must be something timeless, spaceless, and material. I don't know about you, but that kind of sounds like what I think about God being. And if there were the beginning of laws such as physics and chemistry, if there were the beginning of those laws, it seems, I don't know, it just seems reasonable. I'm a simple person. It seems reasonable to me. I'm not a scholar. I don't have a PhD, but it seems reasonable to me that there must have been a law giver, that there must have been a law designer, I believe in God because the universe had a beginning. I also believe that God exists because it seems like everything is so finely tuned. We're just the right distance, not too close to the sun, not too far away. The crust of the earth is not too thick, not too thin. Just the right amount of nitrogen, just the right amount of oxygen, just the right amount of CO2, just the right amount of about 40 different things that allows life to be perfectly possible here on this planet. Wow, I don't know about you, but that just seems too much of a coincidence to be a coincidence. I think there must have been someone who designed it. If there's a design to it, it seems like there must be a designer behind it. And then beyond that, I believe that God exists because of you. What do you mean because of me? Because, I, because of what's in you. Do you know about your DNA? There's like billions of letters that come together that form an intelligible message that we humans have learned to read now. We have spliced the gene. We have actually decoded it and we're learning more about it every day. And it seems as though if an intelligent message is inside of every one of your cells that are billions of letters long, it just makes reasonable sense to me that someone must have wrote that message. That doesn't seem illogical, it doesn't seem unreasonable. So I, I believe what I believe because God exists. And I'll just tell you, if God exists, miracles are possible. If, Je if Genesis one and one is plausible, everything after it is possible. I know it's wacky, it's wild, it's crazy. And I can't tell you that um, some of it just doesn't kind of make me look sideways and cross my eyes and wish it weren't in there. But I'll tell you, I believe miracles are possible because if God exists, you just have to put miracles on the table. And besides that, I believe that the New Testament documents that we have in the New Testament, the last half of our English Bible, I believe that they are historically reliable. You do? I thought a bunch of men just got together and decided what was in and what was out because I've heard all those gospels that they didn't let in because they didn't agree with the story they wanted to tell. And it's like, oh no, did you know there's all kinds of books that write about Jesus outside of the Bible? All kinds of authors who document the life of Jesus outside of the Bible that actually agree with what the New Testament says about the storyline of Jesus? There are? Yes, there are. There's like 42 sources about Jesus in the first 150 years of his life. I never knew that. Well, now you know. And I believe it because there's also, you know, the people who wrote the New Testament were eyewitnesses. They saw this stuff. They wrote it down. 
Did you know that Luke had like 84 different historical details verified in his writings? He did, he did. Did you know that John had 59 in his? Yeah, it's almost like they were writing what they saw. So it kind of feels reasonable to me that we can trust what they said because beyond that, they actually gave their lives. Not because of what they said they believed, but because of what they said they saw and what they wrote down. And I know that the FBI, the FBI, how did the FBI get in this conversation? Well, I know that the FBI says that the really the big three reasons why people make up anything is sex, power, and money. And it's like, yeah, that's pretty true. If you can get more sex and get more power, get more money, why not tell a lie? Because who can't get behind those three things? And it's like, well, too many people are getting behind those things. But, you know, it's like, okay, that's why people make up really bad, devastating, dangerous lies. But did you know that the first writers, the authors of the gospels, the writer of the New Testament, do you know, no sex in it for them, no power in it for them, no money in it for them. They actually, well, they got killed for it. They did, they did. And that's kind of why I think it's reasonable to conclude that based on the facts, that what they wrote is true. And it makes logical sense to me to conclude based on the evidence that what they said happened actually happened. And when we gather all the facts, when we gather all the evidence, then we get to make a conclusion about what we think the evidence is saying. And hopefully we're making a reasonable conclusion about what we think the evidence is saying. Because as we make a conclusion about what the evidence is saying, it helps us to answer life's most important question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? It's the most consequential question that anybody will ever attempt to answer. Because how you and how I answer this question determines how we see all of life. And how we answer this question honestly and authentically will have much to do with how we live our lives. You see, when it comes to Jesus, and this is the unfortunate part, and I, I kind of wish it weren't this way, but it, it just seems to be the way it is. When it comes to Jesus, there just doesn't seem to be neutral ground. There doesn't seem to be middle ground. I mean, Jesus just said the most irritating things. I know it's bad to call Jesus irritating, but he did. He just said some very irritating things like you're either for me or against me. Well, why couldn't he just say you're either for me or undecided? You're, you're either for me or not so much with me. But he said, you're either for me or you're against me. It's like, okay, there, there's apparently no middle ground, there's no neutral ground, so I have to make a decision about who is Jesus. I have to be able to answer that question. You will have to answer that question. And one way or the other, all of us will answer that question. We will all answer that question, who is Jesus? Now, C.S. Lewis came along and C.S. Lewis, he brought to us this idea of the trilemma. And he says, when it comes to answering the question of who is Jesus, C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist, who became a theist, who then became a Christian, and I think one of the most intelligent Christian minds in history, he's one of my heroes, and he's responsible in large part for the, the faith that I have today. And every time I think about the guy, I just, I just get emotional because he, he was so used by God to help people think through their faith. And he says, when it comes to the question, who is Jesus? He says, you really only have three options. It's the trilemma. He's either liar, he's lunatic, or he's Lord. He, he says, don't bring that patronizing nonsense about Jesus is a good teacher, 
I believe Jesus is a good man. I believe Jesus was a prophet, but I'm not so sure that he was really God. I'm not sure if he was really divine. He says, keep that patronizing stuff to yourself because it's not even an option. That Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. If Jesus claims to be God, and he did, and in fact isn't God, he is either a liar or he is a lunatic. If he is not a lunatic or God, that means he's a liar. If he's neither lunatic or liar, then it must be that he is God. So the question we have is this, was Jesus some master manipulator? Was Jesus, was Jesus some psychopath that could lie and not even think about it? Convince people that he was God, convince people like some cult leader that, that he had been sent from God and that he was God and that he was the embodiment of God? Was, was Jesus some master manipulator that, that they would wanna study in Quantico? at the FBI that they would wanna find out how does a man like this convince people that he was God when he wasn't? Or was he just mentally unwell? Did he have delusions of divine grandeur that, that he, he just really honestly thought because of mental unhealth that he was God, that he was divine when he really wasn't? Or is it possible, is it plausible, is it reasonable to conclude that his claims of being God are indeed true? And it is, is it possible that his claims to be God are actually anchored and supported by evidence? And that there is good reason to believe that when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, when he said that when you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that there is reasonable reasons to believe that he was speaking the truth. And Christians believe there is a reasonable reason. This is actually what Christians believe. Christians believe that Jesus was the incarnation of God, that he was the physical visitation of God, that he was God in a body, that he was the incarnation of God who had come into the world to save the world from sin, sorrow, and death. And, and if you're not a Jesus follower, and you're watching this sometime after the fact, or you're watching this right now, and you wonder, is it possible to believe that and really be thinking? Is it possible to believe that and really be logical, to be linear in the way that you think and add things up? Is it possible, is it, is it even remotely possible that there's evidence that would cause us to believe that Jesus was God incarnate, that he came into this world to save it from sin, sorrow, and death, that he entered into the human narrative. He entered into the narrative of this planet that was characterized by sin, sorrow, and death. And he entered into that narrative to save us and not only save us, but in some cosmic way to save the world itself from sin, sorrow, and death. So why in the world would Christians believe that? Well, again, I, I just keep on coming back and hitting the same nail with the same hammer. It's because of the resurrection. Christians believe that Jesus was God incarnate, that he showed up in the world to save the world from sin, sorrow, and death because he was raised from the dead. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment because you probably haven't thought about it lately. And I know you're busy and you're raising kids and you got jobs and careers and businesses and all of this. I understand this, but just think with me for a moment. Jesus Christ had been found guilty. He'd been found guilty of blasphemy and insurrection. The Jewish temple charged him with insurrection or with blasphemy and the Roman empire charged him with insurrection. He was sentenced to be scourged with a whip, a leather whip that had rock and glass and bone intertwined all throughout it. And, and Roman soldiers, Romans, we know from history outside the Bible, the Roman soldiers, 
They were so precise in the way that they would crack that whip and they could crack it over and over again. And the way that they would do it, they could fillet a person's backside from their shoulders all the way down to their ankles that they could fillet a person's backside and leave it open, exposing the bowel, exposing bone, exposing ligaments and sinew that they were so precise, they were almost like surgeons, that Jesus was scourged, which was a humiliating thing in and of itself. Then Jesus had to carry his own crossbeam of his own cross, about 75 to 125 pounds. He carried it in a humiliating way through the streets of Jerusalem, through the Via Della Rosa, the way of the cross, outside the city walls of Jerusalem to the place of the skull, the place known as Golgotha, Calvary. And there we know through the records of the New Testament and because of how the Romans liked to execute people that his hands were nailed to the cross. And it wasn't his hands so much that they took a seven inch spike and they drove it through the ulna and in between the radius bone in his arms. And when that happened, medical experts have studied the remains of people crucified in the art of crucifixion. And in that moment, the median nerve of Jesus would have been severed, sending a jolt of searing, burning pain throughout his entire body. Then they would take the same seven inch spike and they would nail it through his feet. Then they would hoist the cross up and they would get ready to slide it into a hole that had been dug in order to cradle the cross in place. Knowing that when they shoved that cross into the hole, the jarring of that cross against the bottom of that hole would then dislocate the shoulders of Jesus. Dislocated shoulders and the location of his arm would make the next few hours very difficult when it came to breathing. It would have been easier for Jesus to inhale rather than exhale. And because he couldn't exhale fully, there was a buildup of carbon dioxide inside of his body, which caused severe muscle cramps. He had already had massive blood loss, which sent him into what medical doctors call hypovolemic shock. And his heart was pounding, thundering, racing, trying to pump harder and harder because of the lesser amount of blood that his body now had to try to get blood to the parts that needed it most. At the same time, he's suffocating. At the same time, he's suffocating because this is how people died on a cross. And this suffocation, it, it caused an unbearable cycle of pain to ensue. Because in order to catch a breath, Jesus would have had to push up on his feet, which had a seven inch stake drilled through it. That Jesus would have to push up on those feet, causing excruciating pain. At the same time, his filleted open back would have to rub up against the back of the cross, the wood of the cross. And all of that just to rise up just enough to get a breath and let go of a breath. His lungs all the while filling with fluid. And finally, after hours of that, his heart in one final episode of heart failure gave way to a catastrophic disturbance of a heart running out of control. And then he took his last breath. And that was the end of the carpenter from Nazareth. They certified his death with a spear underneath his rib cage and they pierced his pericardium around his heart and John recorded exactly what science would expect. Forth come blood 
and water. His mama was there. And she watched it all play out. Some of his friends were there. Some of his followers were there. And at a little past three o'clock on Friday, they would have never believed that there would be ever a time in the future where they didn't look back at what just happened and be haunted by the images, the sounds, and the smells of what they had just seen and witnessed. Because if you've ever seen someone you love suffer, and if you've ever seen someone you love suffer and die, you'll never forget the sights, the sounds, and the smell. And when his mom and his friends and what had been his followers walked away that day, no one walked off of that hillside called Golgotha singing, I will cherish the old rugged cross. They couldn't imagine such a thought. I will cherish what I just saw. Somehow I will look at it as something beautiful and something good. No one walked away that day singing at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my soul was rolled away. That was not even a thought that would have been possible. So here's the question. Here's the question everybody needs to think about. How does the greatest torture device in the history of the world become the greatest symbol of hope and love in the world? How does a torture device become the symbol of hope, of life and love around the world in the generations to come? How does something designed to instill fear become a symbol of faith? How does a tool of execution become a symbol of love and acceptance? How does, how does a cross that was the epitome of hatred become synonymous with the absolute epitome of love? Something must have happened. Something must have happened after they walked away. Something must have happened after they walked away that allowed them at some point to look back and think of the cross in an entirely different way. To see it as something good, as something beautiful, as something wonderful, as something loving and hope-giving. And here's what Christians, again, I'm going to hit it and hit it again. The reason that Christians understand why that happened is because of the resurrection. It is the only explanation of how those who walked away after three o'clock, not a single one of them believing that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Not a single one of them believing that he was God because how does God die on a cross? Not a single one of them believing that he was a Messiah because how do Messiahs get crucified? Not a single one of them walked away a Christian. There were no Christians after three o'clock on Friday afternoon. But something happened after Sunday that reframed that whole entire episode. Something happened on Sunday that reframed everything. And it was an empty tomb. It was the man they saw die on a cross. Now they see him resurrected from the dead. And this is something that's rooted in history. So you say, is it reasonable to believe this? 
One of the greatest textual scholars in all of the world is believed to be Bart Ehrman. And Bart Ehrman is not a Christian. He used to be, and then he abdicated faith. But this is what he says as a historian that is true to his craft and his discipline. He says, despite the enormous range of opinion, there are several points on which virtually all scholars of antiquity agree. Jesus was a Jewish man, known to be a preacher and teacher who was crucified, a Roman form of execution. In Jerusalem, during the reign of Roman Emperor Tiberius and Pontius Pilate was then the governor of Judea. It is undisputable, undisputable that some of the followers of Jesus came to think that he had been raised from the dead and that something had to have happened to make them think so. Of course, he's not gonna acknowledge the resurrection, but he says something happened. And he goes on to say, it is historical fact that some of Jesus' followers came to believe that he'd been raised from the dead soon after his execution. Dr. Gary Habermas, he comes up with this idea of presenting the resurrection through what he calls minimal facts. That there's a minimal set of facts that basically all scholars across all disciplines, Christian or not, basically agree. And I'll give them to you real quick because it takes us to where we're gonna land this entire series. That the empty tomb is rooted in history. As a historical fact, one, Jesus was a real person who died on a cross and was buried. If you're here and you say, I don't believe that Jesus really existed, you are not a serious person. Because no serious scholar takes that idea seriously. Jesus is documented as a real person in history who died on a cross and was buried, historical fact. Second historical fact, upon his death, the disciples felt hopeless and despondent. They walked away, nobody believing that he was the son of God. Everybody went into hiding because we might be next. They did exactly what any of us would have done had we been there ourselves. Historical fact number three, Jesus's tomb was empty and no one ever produced his body because if they had been able to produce the corpse of Jesus, it would have been game over before the game started. So if the tomb being empty is a historical fact, as a thinking person, you owe it to yourself to raise a plausible explanation to why the tomb was empty. And if you're not willing to posit a plausible explanation as to why the tomb is empty, you are not seriously open to truth. You're not seriously open to the facts because to know that the tomb is empty requires us to have an explanation. So well, the, the disciples must have stolen the body. Really? Those cowards? They're gonna go into hiding and then sneak out, hide the body, hide it somewhere, and then never admit it even to death? Really? Seriously? Well, the Romans must have took it. Why in the world would the Romans have taken it? It was not in their vested interest. All they needed to do was parade the dead body of Jesus down the streets of Jerusalem and say, this is what happens to those who oppose Caesar. So if you're with him, we'll make you with him permanently. The Jewish temple, the authorities, they would have been there too because it was in their best interest to produce the body of Jesus. So where did the body go? Historical fact, the tomb was empty. Number four, Jesus' followers believed they saw him resurrected from the dead. They documented it. Some said, well, it was a hallucination. Really, hundreds of them? 500 at one time having a hallucination? Seems unlikely, seems unreasonable. But they believed it, and then so much so, so it leads us to number five. Jesus' followers were transformed because of what they experienced. They were different people after Sunday because the tomb was empty. U.S. News and World Report ran an article a few years ago and, and, and they said this, yet even the most skeptical biblical scholars concedes 
or conceded that something extraordinary happened in Jerusalem. After Good Friday to account for the radical change in the behavior of the disciples who at Jesus's arrest had fled to their own homes in fear. Could Jesus's resurrection, great question. Could Jesus's resurrection account for the fact that within a few weeks they were boldly preaching their message to the very people who had sought to crush them? What's the reasonable conclusion? And then final, final fact, Jesus' followers were willing to die for their belief. Why? When we follow the facts, and those are the facts, when we follow the facts, we have to follow them even if we don't like the direction in which they lead us. We evaluate the evidence, and then we come up with a logical, plausible, reasonable conclusion to what we know to be fact. Thomas Arnold, I wanna give you what people way smarter than me. I'm a common guy. I wanna give you what smart people think and what smart people who've studied this for hours and hours and hundreds of hours and years upon years and decades of their life. He wrote a great, great volume called The History of Rome. And Thomas Arnold, he said this, he said, I have, I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of not one fact, I know not of one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign, I love that, than the great sign that God has given us that Christ died and rose from the dead. That the resurrection was the event that launched a movement that changed the world. It was the ultimate sign of God saying to us, I am here, I exist. It was the ultimate sign of God saying, I am revealing myself to you through this carpenter from Nazareth, who is God incarnate himself. So don't miss him, don't ignore him. And whatever you do, don't reject him. And so Peter, who gives us the advice to be ready to have an answer, for the reason. He pins one of his last letters before he dies and he says this, he says, praise be, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy, his great mercy. How do you know about the mercy of God, Peter? He said, I looked the mercy of God in the eyes. I looked him in the eyes. He has given us a new birth, a new beginning, a new start, new life into a living hope. Everybody say living hope, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter believed that God was Jesus's father. Just think about that for a moment. Peter, who was an unbeliever turned believer, who then denied having ever believed at all, only to believing in the end. Thinks back to denying Jesus three times, running away, hiding, going fishing until Jesus found him after he was raised from the dead and he found Peter and he had breakfast with him on the beach and they took a walk on the beach together. And Peter says, I looked mercy in the eyes and I'm telling you, it was like I'd never felt him. The way that he looked at me, the way that he talked to me, it was the mercy of God looking me in the face. And it was like I was being ushered into a living hope, a new birth, a new beginning, a new start. And he says, into the inheritance, he goes into the next verse, into an inheritance or all the promises of God. 
He says, we have been part of this inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for us. The promise being that one day every wrong thing will be made right. That there will be a kingdom that is ruled by righteousness and peace. A promise that whosoever will let them come and be part of a new world to come where every tear will be wiped away. And there will be no such thing as sin, sorrow, and death. Where all things, all things will be made new. All things, not some things, but heaven and earth itself will be made new. In a world where sin, sorrow, and death has been forever abolished, the lamb and the wolf will play together. Children will play with vipers and not be bitten. It's gonna be an incredible future to come. And Peter says, we have, we have been invited into this promise of what is to come. This is what Peter says in the next verse. In all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, while you may have to suffer grief of all kinds. It's worth pointing out that Peter never believed in a God that didn't allow bad things to happen to good people. He says, you're gonna suffer because this world has sin in it. And as long as there's sin in this world, there's gonna be sinners. As long as there's sin in sinners, there's gonna be suffering. He goes on, he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care. This is incredible. He says, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Peter says, all of the Old Testament was getting us ready for this moment. All of the Old Testament prophets were pointing to this day. Blaise Pascal, who was a child prodigy, one of the greatest thinkers in all of history, he, he, he talks about the Old Testament prophecies and he says, if you're looking for evidence, if you're looking for proof, he says, think about this. He said, because if a single man, if a single man had written a book foretelling the time and manner of Jesus' coming, and Jesus had come in conformity with those prophecies. This would carry infinite weight, but there's so much more here. There's a succession of men, a period of time of 4,000 years coming consistently and invariably one after the other to foretell the same coming, the same savior that would ultimately show up on the pages of history. There's an entire people proclaiming it, the people of Israel existing for 4,000 years to testify in a body to the certainty that they feel about it from which they cannot be deflected by whatever threats and persecution they may suffer. This is quite a different order of importance. He called it tangible proof for those who wanna know that God exists. Peter says, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life that was handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. Through him, through him, you believe. Can you go to that next verse? Through him, you believe in God. Through him, you believe. Why do you believe in God? Because he was the one who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope is in God. If the tomb is empty, we have to take everything Jesus said seriously. If Jesus was raised from the dead, we have to take everything that Jesus said about life, everything that he said about death, and everything that he said about life after death 
seriously. If Jesus was raised from the dead, do you know what that means? It means that God loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes on him, in him, would never perish, but have everlasting life. If Jesus was raised from the dead, it means that there is forgiveness available for all of our sins, past, present, and future. It means that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be right with God, that on the cross in his body, Christ bore our sins to bring us to God. If God raised Jesus from the dead, it means that God loves you, that forgiveness is available. It means heaven is real. Let not your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. For in my father's house, there are many mansions. And if it were not so, I wouldn't have told you so. But I go away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away, I will come again and receive you unto myself. If God raised Jesus from the dead, God loves you. Forgiveness is available. Heaven is real. How you live your life it matters. The choices that you make, the choices that I make, they matter. If God raised Jesus from the dead, it ultimately, ultimately means the best is yet to come. Faith begins with facts, but it ends in trust. It's one thing to believe that, it's another thing to trust in. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. If you're here, no matter if you've been in church for years or this is something that's brand new to you, maybe today you have followed the facts and you have found confidence in those facts to take one more step and that's what we call faith. You believe that Jesus died for your sin. He was buried and raised from the dead. But today you're willing to trust in the fact that Jesus died for your sins and was buried and raised from the dead. That the wages of your sin was death, but you're trusting in the gift of God, which is eternal life through Christ Jesus. I wanna give you an opportunity to pray a prayer of faith it's not a magic prayer. It's not magic words. But in this moment, you would have the confidence to take one more step and say this, in your heart, Heavenly Father, I believe. I believe because I have followed the facts to the edge of the light. And I'm willing to take one more step to say, I believe that you died for my sin. You were buried. You were raised from the dead. And I trust you with my life. I trust you with eternity. I trust that I can be made right with God, not because of who I am and what I've done, but because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. 
I trust that. I hang my faith and my hope upon that. And I pray with all the faith that I can muster in my heart to say, I receive your gift of grace. Forgive me, cleanse me, change me, make me brand new and usher me into this living hope that we have through Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead. In Jesus' name. Amen.